I want to welcome you to week two of a series we're doing on hope. If you missed last week, you can check it out online. 2,200 of you chatted with each other online last weekend. That's a really good way to engage for everybody that's watching. 100 of you asked for confidential prayer. It's an honor for us to be able to offer that. 163 of you indicated you made a commitment to follow Jesus. And we are thrilled. Our elders prayed for you this morning. Let us know how we can help you in your spiritual growth. I'll tell you one good thing we can all know about this season of coronavirus. It will not last forever. It is going to be over. And therefore, we hope the day is coming. We don't know when, maybe soon, when we will no longer be counting the illnesses and the deaths like we were keeping score of some awful game. The day is coming when we will all come out of our little shelters. Old friends will hug each other. Little children will go running into their grandparents' arms the way they're supposed to. Office mates will gather around water coolers and lunch tables to gossip and laugh. Athletes and artists will once more thrill cheering crowds. Restaurants will host customers that crowd around a table to enjoy food and drink and each other. At grocery stores, shelves will be full and checkout lines empty instead of the other way around. Students will once more fill classrooms and complain about tests and go to proms and be with friends. Weddings will get rescheduled. Businesses will restart. People will be able to return to their old jobs. We hope. And our church will gather once again at every campus to worship and to love, to sing and to pray, to greet and to learn, to drink coffee and eat sacramental donuts to hear a sermon that will have been so pent up by then that it will last for two hours and everybody will listen and no one will complain. I hope a day is coming. We don't know when, when everything will be different. And what is so terribly wrong with today will get fixed. And in the meantime, we hope. Because hope is what keeps us going. Hope for tomorrow is what enables us to endure the problems of today. The Zoom meetings and the spotting internet and the quarantines and the desperate search for black market toilet paper. By the way, I am not making this up. I know one person who got so desperate they actually snuck in and took toilet paper out of our church. They stole Jesus' toilet paper. You know who you are. It's hope, see, that enables us to endure being cooped up with the same old people in the same old space day after day. Somebody said anyone living with a friend or a spouse needs to make up an imaginary third person named Billy to blame everything on. Billy left out the dirty dishes again. A day is coming. We don't know how. We don't know when. But we know. And somehow, just thinking about that day helps us get through this day. So, Together, we're becoming students of hope, not just for our own sakes, but so that we can become agents of hope for others. Lou Smeads wrote that hope is a cord made of three strands. The first is imagination. I form in my mind a picture of what I'm hoping for. I think about it. I make it vivid. And then secondly, wanting. I desire it. I hunger for it. And then third is belief. I believe that what I'm hoping for is coming or at least that it's possible. And now you use those three actions to build hope. When I imagine more vividly what I hope for, to be a more courageous person, or to have a better marriage, or to learn a language, or to be a, a, a person of prayer, when I take time, see, to imagine it, picture it, think about it, maybe write it down. 
And then when I reflect on why it is a worthy goal so that I increase my wanting. And then when I consider reasons that make it possible, including actions I could take to realize it, when you take the time to imagine more vividly, want more deeply, believe more clearly, you hope more strongly. And hope is not easy. The Apostle Paul brought a hope revolution to the world. We're going to see that in this message. And Paul put hope like this. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hope by definition requires uncertainty. If I already have it, I don't have to hope for it. One of the main modern researchers on hope puts it like this. Uh, We live in time. We stand here at point A, but we're always moving into the future towards point B. We have hopes or goals or dreams for the future. Big ones. I want to have a great relationship, a great job, change the world. Little ones. Tonight, I'd like to control the remote control. But then challenges or hardships come. Minor ones. Irritations and interruptions, major ones, recession, illness, loss. World-class hopers have an ability to persist and keep faith and cling to what matters and find a way to move into the future. Now, I think this would be such a hard time to be a student But this is really cool. Andrew Hartley at our Mountain View campus has used this time to design a really awesome mask that a company he works for is is donating to hospitals in New York and Los Angeles. That's what hope can do. To be a world-class hoper means I have worthwhile and even noble goals, and I do not give up on them easily. I bring a sense of expectancy and eagerness into every day. I breathe a sense of life into others when I hope. Hope will improve your study, your work, your relationships, and your soul. Now, a good place to start is to be really honest and look at your current hopefulness level. I want to help you get a clear picture of how hopeful you are. So we're making what's actually the gold standard hope assessment available online. Just takes a minute or so to fill out but you can learn where you stand and actually daily measure your improvement when it comes to hope through this series. So if you're watching this with somebody, tell them, I'm going to do this. Or type it into the live feed right now to encourage other people to do it. And I want to give you a prayer for this series. We'll pray it each time when we come together and you can make it a daily prayer. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to become, hope overflowers. So what I want to do in what's left of this message is talk about specifically Christian hope and how Christian hope will get you through what optimism or positive thinking alone never could. I'll start with a real-life story from this past month. You might have heard about this. Don Giuseppe Berardelli was a priest in a small village of Fiorano in Italy. He turned 72 years old this year, still rode around on a red motorbike. He was known for his cheerful smile. One family spoke about how when their dad died quite young, he became surrogate father for the children, breathing hope into them. 
And when the coronavirus swept through the village, he got sick and his age made him vulnerable. Because there was a severe shortage of medical equipment in Italy, and because people in his parish loved him so much, they all pitched in together and got him a ventilator. But he didn't use it. He gave it up so that it could be used to save another patient that was a stranger to him. And a short time later, Father Don died. If you're listening to this message today and you have a hard time believing in God, you might start believing just in that act of love. It was not what would be thought of as an optimistic act, but it was a profoundly hopeful one. Optimism, which is a real good quality, is a predisposition to expect things to turn out well. It's a personality trait. It's usually focused on circumstances. Hope is a Christian virtue. It encompasses optimism, but it's rooted in something much, much deeper. During the Cold War in Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel split his time between being a political prisoner and doing state-imposed menial work. But he was also the poet of hope for the Czech people, so that when the wall finally came down and the Czech Republic was free, he became its first president. He was asked what kept him going through all those dark years, and he wrote such wonderful words that they're worth reading at length. He said, hope, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirits and its efforts, is something we get as it were, from elsewhere. And I want to talk to you today about that elsewhere. We're optimistic about how things might turn out, but the psalmist says to his soul when it's crushed, put your hope in God. Now, he would never say put your optimism in God. Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that you may overflow with hope. He does not say, may the God of optimism fill you so that you overflow with optimism. Hope, see, transcends circumstances. Hope is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. But now when Paul wrote those words, most people in the ancient world, including people living in Rome, did not think very highly of hope. Nowadays, hope, largely through Jesus and his movement, has become such a positive word, it's hard for us to imagine anybody dissing it. But the ancient world mostly did. So I want to look with you at hope and why in the ancient world they tended to dislike it, and then we'll be in a position, then you will be, to understand these breathtaking words Paul wrote to the church at Rome and how that brought hope to the world and how it can bring hope to you today. 
Now, the big issue in the ancient world, as it is now, is how are we to deal with suffering? What do we do when we're standing at point A, but then success or poverty or a virus or a recession or death robs us of the future we wanted? And ancient writers generally said that what you must learn to count on is you, not the world, not the gods, not elsewhere, yourself, and in particular, your capacity for reason. They said desire or wanting or hoping just sets you up for misery. Sometimes kids dream of being a professional athlete. For me, it was being a professional tennis player. And then reality set in. Thank God I lowered my standards. Sometimes kids dream of being really smart. For me, it was being the smartest kid in school. And then reality set in. Thank God I lowered my standards. Sometimes kids dream of dating and marrying the most attractive person in the world. I had that one too. And then reality set in. Thank God Nancy lowered her standards. Thank God. Now this is why in uh, ancient Rome, a common practice in moral education involved what was called a hardship list. People would write a little catalog of sufferings that you might go through that could train you to stop hoping for something and allow reason to prevail. You don't depend on the world. You don't depend on the gods. You don't even depend on your friends. Now, in the ancient world, like ours, suffering was easier if it could be shared with somebody else. Friends shared everything. Aristotle defined friendship as one soul in two bodies. So one of the noblest themes in Paul's day was a friend willing to suffer and sacrifice and perhaps even die for a friend. The Roman writer Cicero wrote that sometimes people would go to a theater and when they saw a scene like that where somebody would die for a friend, they would weep. They would rise to their feet and give a standing ovation at the sight of one man sacrificing his life for another. But there were limits to all of this. Now again, gang, this will all be in Paul's mind as we will see when he introduces a new explosive hope to the ancient world. Ancients said that one limit was the person that you die for must be a person of great value. They must be worthy of your death. To die for an unworthy person would be a sucker's game. You must separate yourself from non-virtuous, unworthy persons. Another limit in suffering for others was that even if you do help somebody, you are not to allow any suffering, theirs or yours, to disturb your own tranquility. You must distance or separate yourself emotionally from another person if their condition began to create internal suffering for you. And the ancients had a word for that kind of grief or suffering that they looked down on. They called it groaning. Groaning is what weak people do. Groaning is for losers. We all know about groaning. You get rejected for a date. Oh, you get turned down for a promotion. Oh, you got your hopes up. Well, they were anti-groaning. Epictetus wrote, no good man ever groans. Plutarch said, groaning is a sign of weakness. Cicero taught, it is a disgrace to groan. Ixne on the owning gray. And, and they taught if you could do that, if you could master your spirit, if you could become so self-reliant that no circumstance would ever disturb you, you had won the ultimate honor you 
conquered. This is all going to set up what Paul's going to say. The Greek word for conquering is nakao. It's where the word Nike comes from, from the company Nike. And, and the wise sages in the ancient world said, you know, lesser men might prize conquering a city or an army or an athletic rival or a market sector or a competition for the CEO title. But the truly wise people in the ancient world knew better. Real conquering, they said, means conquering internal opponents. My reason allows me to conquer my fear and my worry and death itself. Seneca asked, when will it be our privilege to utter the words, I have conquered? Do you ask me whom I have conquered? Not external enemies, but greed, ambition, fear of death, all of these things that could disturb me internally that has conquered the conquerors. So see, this is why hope was not a prized commodity. Hope was actually considered by some in the ancient world to be like a moral disease, a sign of weakness. It meant you were depending on a power outside yourself. The Greek historian Thucydides said, those who hope typically have a bad understanding of the situation. Sounds like a sign in Dilbert or something, doesn't it? Now, this world of wealth and power and philosophers and kings is about to be turned upside down by a tent-making, penniless prisoner of the empire named Paul. Paul, too, is going to address this issue of human suffering. Paul begins with words that would have been very familiar to people in ancient Rome. Paul says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. And any wise sage reading these words would recognize the hardship list here, would not approvingly. Yep, that's the way it works. Until Paul gets to his next line, and character produces hope. No, the wise in Rome in the ancient world would say, no, no, hope will disappoint you. Hope will let you down. But Paul says, and hope, this hope, Jesus' hope, does not disappoint because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He has given us. Now, the reason the ancients did not believe in hope for human beings is because they did not believe in hope for the universe. They believed history was just an endless cycle of ups and downs that's not leading anywhere. But Paul disagrees. Paul brings from Israel and supremely Jesus, the teaching that the universe had a start, a good start. In the beginning, God created and that it's leading someplace. It has a point B. The prophets called it shalom or the kingdom of God, that everything will not always be this way, messed up. One day, we don't know when, it will all be set right. Paul said, the reason it hasn't been yet, the reason the goal of shalom has been frustrated is sin and fallenness and violence and injustice. But the God of hope does not give up easily. The God of hope has found a way through. And it came at great, great cost in a way that would shock the world. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Why does hope not disappoint? Well, not because things will turn out the way I want them. And not because I have conquered my emotions through all sufficient reason. Hope does not disappoint because Jesus, as an act of complete grace for people as sin-soaked and sin-damaged and sin-stained as me, chose to give his life and suffer and die on a cross. And if we ever really understood that, everybody would stand up and cheer like we have never cheered for anything before in our lives. That's the good news. That's why hope does not disappoint that Jesus died, not just for virtuous people, not just for worthy people, but for sinful, messed up people like me and like you. So the answer to human suffering is not isolated, self-sufficient, all-powerful reason. It's love. Love that agonizes out of anguish concern in the heart of God is the foundation of reality. We are none of us serenely self-sufficient. We groan. We groan. But we don't groan alone. Our writers in both the ancient world and modern times use what's sometimes called the pathetic fallacy to attribute emotions to nature. It's like in a Disney movie when Bambi's mother dies. By the way, Bambi's mother dies And then it starts to rain as though the earth itself is crying. Now, Paul says there's a reason why this idea of nature weeping keeps popping up in literature across the centuries. And it's rooted in reality. Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation groans, not just creation. Not only that, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. We too are the losers and the failures and the rejects. We groan, but it's okay because it's not just creation and it's not just us. Get a load of this. The Spirit of God groans Himself, intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Are you kidding me? A groaning God? A God who chooses to share in suffering and weakness and pain for sinful, unworthy people like me? Oh, and it's not just that, not just that. What we glory in is precisely God's willingness to suffer. Remember, for the ancients, it was the wise man who would separate himself from the unworthy, separate himself to avoid groaning. Paul writes two more hardship lists in the eighth chapter of Romans, but he puts them to unprecedented use, never done before. He doesn't glory in how hardships display our virtues like the Stoics would. He does not glory in how hardships grow our virtues as the ancients would. He doesn't talk about our virtues here at all. Here's what he says. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We glory in our 
friend. We revel in our friend. We are headed for something infinitely better than self-protection from suffering. Therefore, no matter what your hardship list is, and you have one, and it'll grow. Therefore, whenever you reach the end of your rope, and you have a rope, and it has an end, you have been invited by God into an adventure that is unimaginably greater and nobler than just trying to attain personal tranquility. The attainment of an emotionally manageable and pleasant life is not the reason you walk this groaning planet. Remember the ancients said a conqueror was one who had maintained his tranquility in the face of an impersonal world that would always be broken. That was a conqueror. I've learned to not let the world get to me. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than. You understand now, that is not just a pretty phrase. That is not just catching language. That's quite deliberate. We are not conquerors. We are more than conquerors. How? Not through you and me. Not through our power, not because we live triumphant, pain-free lives, not because we figured out, oh no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the magnificent view of human history that simply overwhelmed the ancient world and has captivated the human heart, produced hope that would lead people to suffer and die for a noble cause like no other vision. This is hope, not just for you, not just for now, for the world, for creation. Things will not always be the way they are now. The day is coming. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. We don't know when. We don't know how. But the day is coming when death and sin and pain and guilt will be conquered and groaning will finally, thank God, be over. So you keep hope alive. You keep it alive precisely in your pain, in your suffering, in your groaning, in your marriage, in your family, in your singleness, in your job or your joblessness, in your home or your homelessness, in your strength, in your weakness, in your faith, in your doubt, in your clarity, in your confusion, in your growth, in your guilt. You hold on to your friend Jesus because nothing can separate him from you. You pray. And when you can't pray, you groan. When you can't groan, get somebody to groan with you. We'll do it online today. Wake in hope. Work in hope. Play in hope. Pray in hope. Live in hope. Speak in hope. Go to bed tonight and sleep in hope. Imagine being an authentically deeply hopeful person. Want it. Want it more than anything. Believe it. Believe it deeply, clearly, rationally, and hope will grow. And next week, we're going to learn how to grow hope. So I'll see you then.